The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Nutrisource Pet Foods, Aluma Trailers, Waltons, Grain Belt Premium Beer. North Dakota Tourism, and by Federal Ammunition. My guest today is Andy Edwards from Quail Forever. We're going to do a deep dive into the 2023 quail hunting forecast across the country. We'll dig into quail numbers for all quail species, areas where bird populations are up or down, and some tips to help you bag a few more quail this season. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'll be your host today in what should be about a one-hour tour through quail country. Brandon Morton, as always, is our producer extraordinaire. Brandon, I'm glad you're back. I need you um, because I listened back to the pheasants forecast that we just did. Um, a lot of heavy breathing in there. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. All right. Well, let's start the show with a success story from one of our listeners. Matt Elliott sent us in. Hi, Travis. My dog, Louie, and I both harvested our first dusky grouse yesterday. Many thanks to you and The Flush for all the great content and inspiration. I've been listening and viewing ever since I got my first bird dog, and you all inspired me to explore the beautiful uplands and, most importantly, to find joy in following my dog. Thank you and happy hunting. Matt. I love that. Congrats, Matt and Louie, on your first of hopefully many birds. And we all love hearing these success stories. So please keep them coming. You all inspire us to keep these shows coming every single week. Our guest today is Andy Edwards from Quail Forever. And Andy is no stranger to our podcast. You'll probably recognize his Southern drawl from the last two, and has it been two quail forecasts we've done together? I think that's right. We'll say it is at least. All right. Well, welcome back. Thank you for making time for us again today. I know you've got a busy schedule. Um, you're yeah, you're man. calling in from the beautiful state of Tennessee, Tennessee, right? Yes, that's right. Where about in Tennessee do you live? Um, so uh, Tennesseans love to be uh, super specific. So southern middle Tennessee, we, we kind of have east, middle and west, but I'm an hour south of Nashville. So uh, 14 miles from Alabama, but I am certainly not from Alabama, nor am I an Alabama fan. So we'll just get that out of the way right off the bat. <laughs> not Sorry roll tide? The, you don't roll that's tide? That's right. No, 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 we don't. So we who's are, your uh, team then? We we have still have to bleed orange, man. I went to uh, University of Tennessee for undergrad and masters. So, you know, good, bad, or other, we're we're a UT fan. Mm. I have a buddy here in Minnesota that um, he moved to Nashville. His wife is a singer down there, and he was gone for like three days, and he came back with the thickest Southern drawl that I have ever heard. And I'm like, what happened? It's been a week. Yep. 
And yeah. It's like, man, I can't even tell you. I just, I don't <laughs> know. Good, but well, anyway, that's uh, all I've got. I'm sure well, I sound like a like. Like I just I'm speaking another language up here in the you North know country. I'm I'm just hoping that Brandon has like a filter that he can put on it for the Southerners for your voice <laughs> and then there'll be one on it for for the Northerners for mine. Uh, but well, yeah, I worked I, in Indiana for about three years for Pheasants Forever when I started, and uh, when I came home, it was a real fun. You know, my my aunts and uncles and parents would be like, "Oh, you've you've turned into a Yankee." What have you done? <laughs> and, uh, oh, so man. my wife was born and raised here in, in uh, Pulaski, and she still likes to poke fun at me that I sound like a Yankee every now and then. So that's all good. Well, I think you sound like a Southerner, so I mean, you can tell <laughs> her that. Um, so do you have quail in your area in that part of Tennessee? Yeah. Because, I mean, every once in a while we get a listener or viewer that sends in an invite to come down and experience sure. a Tennessee quail hunt. And I'm like, gosh, we got to do that sometime. But, you know, what does it look like when you go out into the field there near your home? Yeah. Um, so the county I live in is Giles County. And there's there's about four or five counties on the southern border that are kind of a considered a quail focal area um, by our, our friends at NRCS and uh Natural Resources Conservation Service, uh, and and it has been historically a great quail area. It is certainly not what it once was. Uh, anecdotally, it, it's kind of funny if I talk to the diehard bird hunters that still get out and around the county, um, they'll say, "Oh, there aren't many birds. There's just not many birds." But when you really press them, like, so are there wild coveys that you're still hunting out there? And they'll say, "Yeah, a few," but I don't tell many people about it. Uh, you know, West Tennessee is kind of our stronghold. There's a lot more production agriculture over there, um, and kind of looks very similar, quite honestly, to the mid, much of the Midwest where heavy production agriculture and a lot of farm bill practices being put on the ground by our biologists. And, um, so yeah, you can still have huntable and, and good populations of quail in certain areas, um. We are working hard on our public lands, working a lot with the wildlife agency, Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency, and um, putting a big emphasis on quail in Tennessee to um, recover huntable populations on public land as well. So um, it's not, there's there's not a bird behind every tree by any means, mm -hmm. but yes, if you know people that are getting out and doing it, um, I have a friend, yeah, actually our Nashville chapter president, um, he, he does some stream restoration work and on a lot of his projects, he, he routinely sees quail. So hmm. yeah, they're, they're around. Love to see it. I, before we hit record here, you were talking about this quail forever banquet that you're putting together. And, and I mentioned that, you know, I've That's emceed right. a lot of pheasants forever banquets and I've been to a lot of pheasants forever banquets. I've never been to a quail forever banquet before. Oh, is it, man. is it similar to... I'll tell you what, I'm just, I'm recovering from that deep wound uh, just real quickly. Can't believe you've never been to a Quail Forever banquet. We've got to change that. Um, but I, yeah, it's I really agree. similar. I it, agree. It's really well, similar. I, I guess technically Pheasants Forever's big bash up, you know, in the different yeah, Midwest areas. Pheasants to pull that card. Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. So I guess technically... I have been to a quail banquet <laughs> because it's if, one and the same. But it, that's right. No, so they're they're really similar, man. They're they're very right. similar, just depending on kind of the the location you're you're in. But um, 
our local one is coming up this Thursday and, you know, it's in a, a really nice, uh, it's in a barn, but kind of a party barn, if you will. And, uh, so yeah, we got raffles when the doors open and games and, um, chances to win guns and prizes. And then we'll have a nice meal and then an auction and give all the, give all the goods away and, and head home and, you know, lots of sponsors and, um, our 4-H, our local 4-H, um, students are going to be involved and uh yeah so just a good family fun night man we'll have probably 100 right now about 130 folks are are registered and i'd say that's a that's a pretty average quail forever size banquet how many chapters of quail forever are there in the country now um let's just say round numbers 100 i would say that um and you know that number has honestly dropped a little bit post COVID, uh, as a lot of, a lot of us have seen, you know, there's been some struggles with trying to make sure volunteers are healthy, but also kind of re-energized. And so we're kind of on the, on the train again to rebuilding that. Um, I know our, our rep here, our regional representative in Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi has started several chapters in the last year, uh, new chapters and revitalized some. So, um, yeah, I've seen quite a few of those come across lately of some new chapter starts for Quail Forever. So we're growing and uh, and expanding, but right now around 100. Okay. Um, how long have you been with Quail Forever? So I, I started with Pheasants Forever, actually, up in Indiana in 2003. And when we started Quail Forever, I had a chance pretty soon after. We started in 05. I got to move home in 06 and uh, moved to my hometown, man, and covered the southeast and um left for a little while i actually did uh, i was i was a um you know one of the few people that have left the organization and come back and i'm really thankful for that um they'll have to get me out of here with a stick of dynamite next time but um (laughs) i i went and worked for a small nonprofit here in tennessee for a while but um so came back full-time in 2013 and left for about three years, three or four years, and yeah, came back in thirteen and kept kept rolling, starting chapters and and supporting our volunteers, doing um, doing local chapter events. And then about two and a half years ago, I was able to step into this role of uh, program manager for Quail Forever. So um, it certainly isn't doesn't show by my looks, but I kind of act like a cheerleader for the uh, organization internally and externally. And um, love what I do. When you say it doesn't show by your looks, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, <laughs> how how should that look? <laughs> Did I, I, have... I don't know if I would pass for a, for a cheerleader, but um, but uh, my physique is definitely uh, not not the the right uh, fit for well, that. I, no, I feel we, like we... you know Bob Bob Saint Pierre has graciously given me one of the the pheasants forever blaze orange blazers to wear oh, so my. when i what well, i know wow. i feel like i feel yep. like a million bucks when i walk up on stage i really do that to me feels like uh, the appropriate outfit i i don't know I why think but right. I i've think told them right. this before but i think a life member of pheasants forever or quail forever one of the options you know how like there'll be like a gift that comes with it yeah should be the glaze vest yes it's like the master's jacket you know the green jacket yeah so if you're Uh a quail forever life member 
you get a blaze orange blazer. And then when you go to no. banquets, everyone's like, whoa, look Ooh, who just walked in the guy. door. You know? Can you and imagine got- at Pheasant Fest? It would be amazing. I know. I know. You've got to bring this back up to Bob. I've told him a couple of times and he's like, I know, I think we need to do it. But I really think that it would like everyone else who sees it, they'd be like, what's the story there? And you've got, you could have like golden pin on it, you know, either a quail or a pheasant be like, I'm a life member. If you become a life member, you could um, have one of these blazers too. Because I tell you, I've never... Yeah, I've never worn that without people coming up and being like, OMG, look at that. <laughs> maybe I'm ridiculous or maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sure, anyway. sure, they're just, sure they're just laughing with you on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. That's, that's yeah. what I tell myself, Andy, all the that's time right. when people that's are right. laughing. They're laughing with me. So I yeah. assume, you know, over the last 20 plus years that you've been with the organization, um, you know, your role has changed and now you're a cheerleader. So, but like, what does that even look like to the big, the good, the big picture of the organization that's growing nationwide? Yeah. That's a, um, just to clarify on that. I do, I, I do a whole lot of connecting people that are doing great things internally. I mean, honestly, Travis, we're, we've grown to be a really big organization over 500 employees now. And uh, quite often it takes a while for new folks to kind of learn to navigate what what options are out there for helping if they're if they've got a great plan on doing something, you know, not reinventing the wheel, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I work with our regional directors who supervise all the field staff uh, out on the ground through our state coordinators, um, making sure that, you know, New folks have a really good understanding of who we are as an organization, but then also um, making making connections to great great stories that are out there on the ground. Every you know, so a, a new farm bill biologist goes and works with a really awesome landowner. They get a great project done. It's with a bunch of partners. Well, we want to make sure we elevate that to the national level so people understand what's getting done out there. So a lot of that, you know, a lot of telling our story, um, making sure our people understand that's, that's a a crucial role for them and then helping them to tell that story through our different, um, media outlets, um, or, or platforms, if you will. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of coordination with Bob, um, on a day-to-day basis, all of you, you know, hopefully our listeners are are well-versed in who Bob St. Pierre is, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, our chief of marketing and communications and just, yeah, man, being able to tell the story of what Quail Forever is doing out there and the impact that we're having. And although, you know, our membership numbers aren't uh, near as high as Pheasants Forever, we're we're actually approaching um, about an even number of employees. We have about 46 percent of the organization that are that are doing quail work out there. Um, over 100 biologists now on the ground in the in the quail range. So that could be Western mm-hmm. quail or or Bob Weiss, but, um, the fastest growing part of the organization is quail forever. So, yeah, and I think, I, I really think that the membership numbers will follow that, you know, I mean, you, we, you're building, we think so. yeah, the way yeah. you build it up internally, the, the effect that that's going to have on the landscape, I believe should inspire and hopefully generate interest from more bird hunters to want to be a part right. of this and say, Hey, we right. can 
we can have a say in this. We yeah. can make a difference. And every little bit matters. Every single person matters in this, you know? And it does. if somebody listening is a Pheasants Forever member, they can also be a Quail Forever member at the same time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, go and, ahead. And I'll say too, you mentioned that that like we're growing, but what what was interesting with Pheasants Forever, you know, we kind of built from that grassroots level with chapters and volunteers and members, and then in 2003 we put our first um, biologists on the ground, and that was in areas where we had great chapter support. Well, quite often now we're doing that the opposite way. Um, we are putting staff out on the ground where where we need their their help in supporting existing quail populations. And then we are seeing that organic growth of chapters because of the effect that those biologists are having. So different model, but it's certainly working. Yeah. And you, quail country is a lot bigger than pheasant country. I mean, it, it really is. There's pheasants in, you know, more than a dozen states, but really oh, yeah. um, there's quail in the majority of American states. Right. Right. You know, we we say routinely that Bob White are in 25 states. And then if you add in another, you know, eight or 10 states in the West. So let's, let's say 35 states that, that have quail. Um, so, yeah, we're we're certainly covering a large portion of the U.S. Do you remember your first your first time, <laughs> your first quail explosion? Why, Travis? Um, <laughs> I, I do, actually. And mine's a little different. Um I didn't grow up quail hunting. My dad did. My, you know, everybody else in, in the family, kind of the, the generation ahead of me, did. But my first experience was actually getting to go to this the historic Ames Plantation in West Tennessee. No and way! That was your that, that was your first time. It, it well, it was, but what it, I wasn't carrying a gun. I was walking a transect on a uh, quail survey for the University of Tennessee. We went on mm. Christmas break and uh, got to walk trans. I got to enjoyed walking these uh, these death march transects um, twenty yards apart, looking uh, for quail. We would flush coveys, try to get a count, and then um, kind of do that as a population estimate annually. And they did that for years. That that was a probably a forty year project. Uh, really neat to be a part of. I, I was able to do it for five years, and uh, so yeah, it was really neat to kind of get and, and it helped me get kind of dialed in on knowing where quail habitat, you know, where, where coveys were likely to be, um, what really, what real quail habitat looked like. So that was a pretty awesome experience. Well, as we're going to get into here, quail habitat, ideal quail habitat changes from north to south, east to west, depending on the bird, uh, mm -hmm. where people hunt them. So we can't do justice to every bird species in every state, but I right. think we can we can give a pretty good outlook for hunters this season, and we'll talk about some um, areas that they may want to target or avoid there. But if someone listening right now has never hunted for quail, why should they try it this season, Andy? Gosh, there's so many reasons. Um if if you have dogs at all and or enjoy being around dogs, I'd say honestly that's the number one reason to the that that's the the lights come on moment for most people, especially kids when you're at youth youth hunts, when they see that dog lock up and just mm -hmm. freeze like a statue and qu their tails quivering and they're you know looking uh, just so intensely at something you know out ahead of them. 
um, man, that's hard to beat. And then to be able to go in and, and flush those birds and, and that, you know, that roar of the covey is amazing. Uh, so that's kind of your second thrill and just being able to, you know, test your skill. Cause it's not, uh, it's not a cakewalk, man. <laughs> and, uh, if you shoot into the covey, you're likely to get nothing. So, you know, right. being able to pick one out and, and drop it, man, that's, that's kind of the icing on the cake. So yeah, it, it's something every, I'm biased of course, but everybody should experience that. Yep, exactly. The, there are so many pheasant hunters and I get it. I understand why pheasant hunting oh, is yeah. so popular. Absolutely. I love that bird too. Me too. But if I could pick one or the other, I'm going to take a, a quail explosion because the rush of a covey rise of quail yep. just sets you back. I mean, that yep. bird sits in the palm of your hand when you get it. Yeah. And yet when it takes off, it literally knocks you back. That's like, right. You know, yeah. there's a quail there or a covey. Cause the dog yeah. is staring at a bush and yet when it happens, it still is like it still takes the first you. time, you know, and it's like, Oh, it's so good. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. so cool to witness that the rise of those birds. And you it know, is. if you, like you said, a pointing breed dog, if you have a pointer that locks up on, on a covey and you walk into it sure. and you flush that, that, that covey, it yeah. is, you can't forget it. I remember mine, it was in Oklahoma and it was just like the coolest thing. And I, I love every time I get the chance to hunt for quail because it's the cubby rise. I mean, it yeah. is special. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, let's, let's get into the quail forecast. So, okay. uh, just some general overview. What makes quail numbers boom or bust each year? Okay. Um, hmm, really good question. I would say the easy answer there, this, uh, the short answer would be weather, but you know, that is certainly true in areas that have good good cover, good quail habitat. Uh, and I'm talking primarily uh, brood rearing cover. Uh, I would say brood rearing cover is super crucial and can be really affected annually by rain cycles. And that's more, you know, more evident when we get out in the western edges of the range. So, you know, New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas. Nebraska, those areas are, are always, you know, affected by a, a nice, um, nice spring rains and um, carrying that into the summer. So the, the drought, drought conditions that persist year to year really, really hamper, you know, really affect populations. I, I would say east of the Mississippi, though, Travis, most often it's not a lack of rain um, issue. We, we can certainly have good quail numbers in a drought year in the in the far east, what affects us most often is because we get so much rain, you know, 60 inches normally of, of rain, that quail habitat quickly becomes deer habitat, if you will, east of the Mississippi, if we don't continually disturb it and manage it for, for early successional habitat. Uh, that's our buzzword typically we refer to. But um, so, yeah, in the east, it's going to be good management. Um, along with some, if we don't have some cold spring rains or heavy um, ice and snow in the winters. Now is a great time to make the most of all that tasty meat you harvested. Maybe it's time to try a new recipe, sprinkle on a new seasoning, or make your own jerky and sausage. Trust me, it's not that hard to do, and it can be fun for the whole family. It doesn't matter what you harvested or what you want to prepare with it. Walton's has you covered. Walton's has 
everything but the meat. That's their motto. Waltons.com has everything, and I mean everything you need to process and prepare your meat. Plus, they have an online community called Meatgistics that's full of recipes and meat processing information. The sky's the limit, my friends. You don't have to be a pro to cook like one. Head to Waltons.com today and enjoy meat processing season. Thankfully, it's a season that never ends. A toast to the hunters from your friends at Grain Belt. May the mornings be clear and the fresh air be crisp. May you find solace in the silence. May the stillness settle your soul. May your long shot stay true. May your heart roam free. May you find what you seek in the fields you stock. May your call to the wild be answered. And at the end of the day, may you share the thrill of the hunt with your friends. So here's to the eight pointers and the 12 ounces. Here's to you and to your thirst for adventure. Bring Grain Belt to the outdoors with our limited edition premium hunting season pack. This season, enter to win a hunting trip for two to Brown's Hunting Lodge, wherever you can find premium 12 and 24 pack cans. For more information, visit our website at grainbelt.com forward slash hunting dash trip. A healthy dog is a happy dog, and a dog's optimal health ultimately starts with an optimal diet. That's why I trust Nutrisource Performance Dog Food to keep Daisy healthy and running to her full potential. Nutrisource now has a full circle feeding plan that can help your dog achieve their full potential too. The full circle feeding plan revolves around their entire lineup of Nutrisource dog foods that contain their good for life system. The Nutrisource good for life system is packed with probiotics, prebiotics, and proprietary minerals that work together to support your dog's heart health and gut health. By combining this system and all of their dry foods and wet foods, you can rotate carbs and proteins like chicken, beef, fish, and lamb to meet and exceed your dog's needs and accelerate their natural desire to eat. Plus, their toppers like kombucha add even more health benefits for our dogs. Learn more about Nutrisource dog foods and the benefits of their full circle feeding plans at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. So for the east of the Mississippi birds, Bob Whites, it almost seems like, you know, for somebody in, let's say, Michigan or Minnesota or Wisconsin that like to grouse hunt, you're basically looking for the same nesting conditions down in your country there for Bob Whites that we want up here in the spring, which is... We just need some dry weather during yeah. the nesting season. Yeah. And when we get that, rough grouse numbers do very well. Yeah. If, you know, typically quail are going to initiate nesting in, in May, June, rough, you know, just rough numbers in May and June. And if you don't get some late cold snaps or in, especially in June, if you get three or four days of kind of a chilly rain that's gloomy and, you know, those those chicks get hypothermic after after several days of that and they don't make it. And so, yeah, um, same for turkeys, same for grouse. So those those late spring, early summer, cold, cold, dreary days, rain, rainy, those are really tough on birds. Um, hmm. As far as nesting conditions, I would say, though, um, one thing that if, if anything, I think people sometimes miss the mark on quail is that they um, there's kind of this assumption. And I have this conversation a lot about quail habitat. You know, it looks like it did back in so and so when we had quail. Well, what people miss is that the woods that they're talking about, I'm using the, you know, the forest, the, the, the wooded areas that these people are talking about, probably when they saw quail around were, were pretty young, wood, young forest. They were open still. They had young trees in them. And um, quail don't live in mature hardwoods or mature pines either for that matter. Um, and, and 
quail are really a shrubland species. They they are um, not to be too you know science based here, but they are a shrubland obligate. So they have to have some some percent of their cover in shrubs. So that's easy to see when you're in Oklahoma or Kansas because you look out and there's a plum thicket and you know, mm-hmm. like you've done it, Travis, you know that's, that's <laughs> yep. yep. But in Tennessee, that's hard to find. Like you you look around and you're looking at a, you know, maybe it's a, a weedy field and a wood line. Um, sometimes those shrubs are a little harder to pick out, but they're still, that's still where, where the quail are going to be found near. Yeah, and and I think you know we keep I've mentioned this a minute ago about the grouse up here in Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin. It's it sounds the same. I mean, I'm in the woods the other day with uh, a friend and with my son, and we're walking, and I'm pointing on the map on my Onyx at like we need to get up here. We need to get just a little further. And <laughs> if if you don't understand the bird and the habitat. I mean, all you have to do is just go with somebody like somebody mm-hmm. with experience and yep. pay attention. And you look around and all of a sudden the maturity of the forest changes just a it's little, changed. you yep. know, to a non-hunter. It it would be like, I don't know what you're talking about here, but you right. see just a little difference. And all of a sudden you go from yep. zero birds around to grouse all over the place. And yep. it's, you know, just areas that had been logged eight years ago or seven years ago, or whatever it might be. And you leave that cover, and boom, there's no grouse again. And it's so easy to say, this is what we need. But it's a matter of, we need more of it if you want more birds. And so, yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering, too, with the bobwhites. I have never hunted bobwhites in the forest down in the southeast. It's something I really want to do because I love, love rough grouse hunting so much. But... right. I mean, you're a rough grouse hunter too. I know you're coming Absolutely. up this this way here in a couple of days, but that's right. Is it? Do you hunt them pretty much the same way as you do rough grouse up here? Then, um, you know, for for a lot of a lot of folks that are hunting quail, they're going to hunt. Um, if you're hunting pointers or setters, a pointing dog in general, mm-hmm. most of the time, you know, those quail dogs are going to be farther ranging. Quail are notoriously, you know good to hold for bear for dogs uh and so they let those those pointing dogs range much farther out than grouse mm-hmm. um and i always laugh we had a we had a a regional rep who uh worked for us and we went to south dakota one year and he was a grouse hunter and a quail hunter and he lets his dogs out of the truck in south dakota and i'll say hey how how close does that dog hunt oh she hunts the cover and you know, she's a half a mile out in a cornfield in about 30 seconds, and then she's bouncing off of a shelter belt and where a 100 pheasants flush out, and then she's back, you know, through the CRP and then locked down, you know, 500 yards from us. Well, that's a quail dog. Um, yeah. That's not a pheasant dog, nor that is that a grouse dog. So I, I would say the difference typically is that those birds, those dogs are going to range farther. You have the opportunity typically, um, in especially the southern pine stands, uh, they're very open, um, low low trees per number of trees per acre. So you're gonna be able to see the dog for quite a while. Um, mm. And so, and that's know, what, that's where the nickname out. the gentleman Bob comes from. In that right. it's a gentleman's hunt. In that your dog will go find them. And typically, if your dog is trained to not bust a covey, it will 
hold until you get there. And like I said earlier, that explosion happens right under your feet. I I had my son out for his first grouse hunt the other day and man, Andy, it was just magical. So he's hunted, you know, a variety of different birds and he just keeps proving that he's ready for the next hunt. And so going in that thick cover with a bird that's so fast, I mean, lightning Uh. fast grouse, I'm like, buddy, you know, I talked to him about it. We had a two hour drive and I just kept talking about everything. And he's walked before and he's seen grouse get up. He's watched me shoot grouse and woodcock. But now the gun is is in his hands and he goes in for that first flush. And it was, it was a woodcock and he flushes it. And cause I'm like, it's right in front of Daisy. Just go up, you know, don't walk alongside her. Just come in, get a, you know, give her some space, but it's right in front of her. And he goes in and that bird just knocks him back. Like he <laughs> experiences yeah. that he's the flush, you know, he's the flusher in that mm-hmm. scenario. Mm-hmm. Daisy's job is to just stand there and Oh my goodness. Just like afterwards, his heart is just pounding. He didn't take a shot at it and still oh, wow. he may yeah. never forget it. I probably oh, won't. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know That's why I'm good. telling this story. Where did we get? Oh, um, no, how, I got to how old is he? Nine. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a nine-year-old and we're, I'm planning our first pheasant hunt together this year too, um, out to South Dakota. And, you know, he's hunted a variety of different birds. He's shot more ducks already this year than I have. Uh, we've probably, we're pretty even on geese. He's shot more doves than I have. And granted, I'm really making, you know, an effort to help him to be at his side and to coach him but man i'm taking the training wheels off of that kid because he's just yeah. proving again and again and again that he's yeah. really responsible with the gun he's never pointed that barrel anywhere but up and it's unloaded when it needs to be and i'm just really proud of his gun handling skills oh, but he's good. taking yeah. birds uh, in the air and like there was one time where I had a couple of wood ducks come in and he wasn't there. I was hunting with another buddy and I'm thinking Weston, I missed, I missed them. Oh, and yeah. I thought my son would have had that. <laughs> I can't believe I missed. Well, yeah. I, I'm seeing that man. I have a 13 year old and he is doing it the same thing. Like, uh, we, we've gone out and shot clays a little bit and we, he shot, uh, he's, he's hunted in the youth waterfowl season several times with a, with a buddy of ours. And, Last year, it was kind of fortunate. We had, I think it was a bad box of shells. They just weren't, you know, they were older. And anyway, they were, they were getting the primer, yeah. but they weren't, they weren't shooting. And oh. because of that, he was able to like, it took him longer to get his six birds, but he got, he just, he, it made him focus and concentrate and he just was doing great. But yeah, it's pretty neat to see the, I will say though, like as an aside, I know we're, we're going to talk quail forecast here, man, but we, we had our local fair here a couple weeks ago and part of him you know growing up you know you, you walk past there's that the the little arcade game where you punch the the little punching bag oh yeah and, yeah i know what you're yeah, talking and, about yeah and of course like he wanted to do it and i'm like oh, okay here's did you do buck, it too you, know, you had to probably jump in oh, there as well of course right? that's where i'm going like and my kids <laughs> and it's not a tall mark i'm like five nine but my kids two inches taller than me already at 13 and he punches the thing and it was like seven eight hundred on the little scale i'm like that's that's pretty freaking great, you know? So I get up there like, oh, let old dad show you how this is done, you know? And I about fall down when I hit the thing, and it went up to like 300. And I was just like, oh, oh, okay, I, I hit it I hit it wrong. I just didn't do it right, you know? And But I think uh, 
I think the uh, the the trainer is maybe maybe uh, kind of limiting the the trainee at some point here before too long. I think he's going to be a better shot than I am. And that's the way it's supposed to go, though, right? It that's, is. It's it way is. better. It's way yeah. better to break up your boy than it is to show him up. And yeah, oh, I love it. There's still it. just that little bit of you though. It's like really. Dang, I'm getting old. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. So as long as we're telling these kind of stories, like I, I, on our, the pond in our neighborhood, I keep it groomed with an ice rink. We put lights up. All the neighborhood kids come oh, over wow. and skate. My, my kids play hockey and yep. there's another neighborhood wow. dad where we call ourselves the bald eagles because we're both bald. <laughs> and, uh, one day a bald eagle soared by and we're like, yeah, we're the bald eagles. Yeah. And we take on our That's kids right. and they're every year they get better and better. And my neighbor who That's played cool. D1 Division One hockey, he's like, you got to lay one out. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you got to lay one out. And, do it. and it's not that you do it every time, but they, in their mind, know that it could happen because you've done it once. You're still oh. bigger than them. So you yeah. literally lay one of them out into the snowbank, you know, and then you take <laughs> the puck. And so it's in their head a little bit because now they're starting to get better than us. And I'm not right. that good anyway, but... um yeah, so I did it, and I'm nice. proud of it. Yeah, nice. I'm not ashamed at all. <laughs> nice, such yeah. such a cultural reference there because uh, there's never the water does not get hard down here. There's never a chance for us playing hockey on any any waters down in my neck of the woods. You're missing out. What do you do in the winter then? Man, we go fishing, <laughs> but we don't go with <laughs> ice fishing gear. Yeah. I go fishing. I mean, yeah, I go fishing in an ice yeah. castle fish house. We've got a TV. Yeah. You know, we've got a fire going in there. We got pizza in the oven. Oh, and well, that's my yeah, kind of my, yeah. It is a little bit different too. It's not like when I grew up sitting on a bucket and freezing. Yeah, yeah oh, we're totally I spoiled. Bet. Totally spoiled. Okay, no. back to Quail Forecast. Yeah. All right. Yeah, absolutely. So, All right. Okay, but so on Quail Forever's website, quailforever.org, you have done this just like pheasantsriver.org right. with the the pheasant forecast. Yeah. Um, presented by Sportsman Guide, by the way. Good call right. on Sportsman's Guide. Man, they have, I, I think I when I had them on, like if we're talking kids here, Sportsman's Guide, I think, has the best selection of kids hunting clothes. I oh, really do. It right. is. It's so great. So just a shout out to Sportsman's Guide on their selection. Um, also I, I, I took a picture of the socks cause they have these Merino wool socks. Oh my goodness, mm -hmm. Andy, if you're in need of socks, like everyone, the first time you put on a pair of new socks, it's like the best day for your oh, feet ever. It well, is. It's like I ordered snuggling. like 20 more pairs. I'm, I wear them every wow. single day and wow. for hunting a good pair of socks, when you put on oh. 15 miles in a day, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. So I, I've had other I people send me screenshots admit. that are yeah. like, dude, these stocks. Yes. Thank you. So awesome. another shout out there. I, I got to admit, I'm a little, I get, I raise my eyebrows a little bit when I go hunting with somebody and I see they got a pair of like, you know, ring spun cotton on. It just makes me wonder like, Ooh, mm -hmm. that's got to be painful. Or I just can't imagine. I haven't worn cotton socks in years. Like we'll, we'll all the way, even in the summertime, man. Yeah. Uh, it's all I ever wear. Uh, it really so is. Yeah, Good, comfortable great. pair of socks. And the deal that you get at Sportsman's Guide on the socks, honestly, I don't think you can beat it. I really don't. So uh, check it out. Check it out. There, it's the Sportsman. Sure. is Guide Gear Socks, Merino Wool. Mm. And there's a couple different options. You can get them in a three-pack for... I don't know, eight bucks or something or 12 bucks. Wow. It's really yeah. a really good deal. 
and I won't go hunting without him now. I won't. Okay. Great. Back to the forecast. <laughs> On the site, you can hover over each state, just like right. the pheasant you forecast, can. and then you get a report on it. Before we dive into yeah. individual states, so let's just do an overview of what you, what's like the general theme of the quail forecast this year? Is it positive? Is it negative? Where are we at? Yeah, um, I, I would say in general, it's pretty positive. Um, there's some states that are kind of just kind of a normal like push year where it's, there's not a huge increase, but um, there was some there was some drought conditions and some ice um, certainly affected in the northern parts of the range. But um, man, I, I just they're, they're, well. I hate to go ahead and do it, but let's just, we, we've taken a while to get to the point. So I'm going to hop in on a state here of, mm-hmm. of Missouri. Let's, let's just pick one out right in the middle where, uh, you know, it could be a destination state for just about anybody. Um, they are looking at a 22% increase statewide over last year. So, you know, there's certainly, um, certainly good numbers out there. Uh, that to me was, was kind of the shining star, if you will, for the, for the quail report this year, um, Northern Prairie, Northwestern Prairie was actually up 29% over last year. Wow. Uh, you know, in that, in that area, 54% above their 10 year average. So, um, man, for, for a quail hunter or a guy who loves, you know, uh, loves just hearing good things about quail, that's, that's pretty awesome numbers right there. Yeah. So um, when you when you look at these numbers, you know, and it says with an average of two point eight two birds per route. So uh-huh. does that mean you're hearing the the whistle yes. and then that says there's a quail there? But we know that quail are covey birds. So if there's one, is that basically saying there's a covey right there? Oh yeah. That's a good that's a good question. And I was looking to see. So this was uh roadside surveys. These are so some states they do rural like mail carrier surveys. Some states it's it's those are done by the the agency, um, the wildlife agencies. Typically though, and I don't I don't see the number on here, but I know Iowa's is a thirty mile route. But so they're they're documenting birds on a certain set route year after year, and that's in the spring. Uh, so you're either hearing them or seeing them, and what you could basically generalize is that. If you're seeing a bird in that area, that is going to equate to a covey in the fall. So that's at least, you know, a, a, let's say it's a male bird there where there's a female nearby typically, then then you're going to, they're going to have a nest, produce a clutch that will then become a covey in the fall. So yeah, it's a good, good general rule of, of kind of, now there are a lot of, you know, from June to, to October, November hunting seasons, as a long time, a lot of things could happen, but um, that's that's kind of what you could equate to the to the measure of success for the fall. Hmm. So I'm looking here at this <clears throat> at the notes on Missouri, and here's a key takeaway: although the roadside survey results are largely below the ten year averages, there's one thing you need to remember: quail do not live on roads. Quail Forever staff in Missouri have received <laughs> numerous reports from private landowners and have witnessed increased quail numbers across the state. I personally cannot recall a time mm. when I've seen or heard more birds than I have mm. this year. Yeah, yeah. That, that's huge. Um, that and, is. And I saw that same thing for, um, I believe it was Kansas that they were talking, or maybe in Iowa. I'm, they're all running together at this point. 
I'm so well, here, sorry. Let's, uh, let's, I'm going to click on Kansas then. Let's just get there. Uh, where are you oh, at? You know Kansas? what? So, so Iowa was the one I was seeing. Uh, Todd Bogan shoots who, who does both our pheasant and quail forecast. He says, why counts were not better is a mystery as anecdotal reports across the region report good numbers of whistling males this spring. So, so they, they all felt like in, in Iowa, at least that kind of anecdotally, it was a really good year, but their numbers didn't play out for that. And sometimes that's, you know, uh, and they even refer to it here. Part of the time, you know, it could be the day that you go and sample. It could have been a a, a gloomy morning and, and right. birds weren't weren't out or birds weren't singing or those sorts of things. So, uh, but it's good for a long term long term trend data. Um, it's a little tough sometimes to to hang your hat on what a spring count looked like for a fall season. But yeah. So, so let's so go to I let's go to Kansas then yeah. after this if you're all right with that. We'll jump over there. Yeah, what are we what are we seeing in Kansas? I know that's an area that you have spent a lot of time hunting in the past. I, I know you do a yep. a road trip that usually begins in Missouri and kind of takes you south and west from there. Yep. Um, what are we what are we thinking for Kansas statewide? And then are there general areas that are more promising? Yeah, it, th- there are. And one of those, this is one of those states that kind of had the full picture of things. You know, there there was ice and snow, there was drought, and all those things really affected it. Um, if you're if you're on there and you're looking around, probably the, the and I'm not trying to give you the, the condensed version, it's not a very long thing, but, you know, you can look kind of down to the lower end of this there's flint hills forecast southwest kansas red hills forecast um glaciated plains so there's if you're if you're going to kansas kind of look at the areas that you go because it's a little different for all of them um like like here you know southwest kansas saw a noticeable jump in numbers this year um along the arkansas river in particular good survey results uh, but it's kind of difficult to sample that area i know they talked about the north East area of Kansas actually being up over long-term averages, but mm-hmm. there's not a lot of typically not a lot of birds in that area. So, um, yeah, just I think if you got an idea of going, let's say to to a destination state, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, you know, Nebraska, Missouri, just it you got to dial into like that specific area you're planning on yeah. going because it's it's really variable particularly in those westerns in those western edge range states um so pheasants generally um you know when people say the pheasant capital of the world where do they think south dakota south dakota yeah when somebody says where's america's bobwhite quail capital in america i think that has Oh, that's a really tough question. And man, you know, you just like set me up to get beat up by somebody here. Um, that's that's so, my job, buddy. I, I appreciate it. Um, so <laughs> th- this is this is your laying me out in the snow moment. Um, so I think you would traditionally like 40 years ago, everybody would have said, you know, South Georgia. That's the traditional kind of that. Um, the 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 plantation pines, the the hunting in the that's the kind of quintessential gentleman's hunt for quail i I do think now that that has changed somewhat because i feel as though and maybe it's because i am one you know this kind of vagabond hunter where you're wanting the experience of travel 
and kind of getting out and seeing different country as much as anything. So -hmm. it's not about the bag limit. It's about getting to see new country. But I really feel like Kansas, well, really Nebraska as well. Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas are where quite a few of our people end up. Now, a lot of times they'll, they'll pick up a state like Missouri or Arkansas um, even Iowa along the way if they're coming from the east. But yeah, I think they go to those those western states. So the reason um, I bring that up is, you know, like if we say South Dakota is a pheasant capital and mm-hmm. the reports say we're down 10% or up 10% or something like mm-hmm. that. Like the those numbers, you know, are all relative. So like let's say Yes. You know, if they're up 40, if pheasant numbers are up 40% in Wisconsin, you went from like four pheasants in a quarter section to eight. If they're up 40% in South Dakota, you went from <laughs> 150 yeah. to, you know, to, 250. To or, yeah, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. that's why, yeah. you know, when we look at these numbers in Missouri, the numbers are up, let's say 20%. So does that mean that? there are hundreds more birds per five miles or like two cubbies in addition um, to what you normally would see? I guess that so, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I would say like, if you look at birds in, in Virginia versus Missouri versus a really good year in Oklahoma or Kansas or Texas, um, those are on a like gradient scale of, you know, certainly almost exponential, like, You're going to see in a really good year in Missouri, uh, yeah, like you said, you're going to see going from on your morning walk, you might bump two to four cubbies. Well, you might see six to eight in a a half day. You know, that'd be a really good day, I'd say. I'd take Kansas, though, you know, or Texas, gosh, we're still thinking about the years, you know, 2015 to 17 in Texas. A morning walk there could be 20 cubbies. You know, on, a, on that one of those high years, really high yeah. years. Um, so yeah, it's it's typically, and that's so. It is very habitat dependent, but that when that habitat is is right, and you get the rain, uh, the explosion really happens on those western edges of the Bob White Range. So, to the point of let's say Oklahoma or, or Texas, I know things have changed, but in the last five years or 10 years even, the habitat hasn't changed drastically. So mm-hmm. it's really about mm-hmm. the moisture at the exact right time sure. at this point, right? Yeah. For that boom, right. because right. I got to experience 20 cubbies a day in Oklahoma. I saw it with yeah. my own eyes. It's yeah. amazing. It's it awesome. And yeah. I bet if I went to that same property today, it would look almost exactly the same, right? Right, right. So it's it just really the similar. weather. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. One one of the things I think it, you got to train yourself for, and again, we're back to habitat, but when you're, when you're quail hunting, look for diversity. So if it's one species of grass that you're walking through and it's pretty thick, you're probably not in quail habitat, not in great quail habitat. If you're walking through a weed field, if you will, uh, it's weedy and there's a lot of different habitats, different heights. There's a little bit of grass here and there and there's some shrubs. That's quail habitat. It, it takes a while for me to get re- you know, retuned, if you will, in even annually in Kansas, or if you're going to the Southern Plains, um, it's just, it's really subtle, but yeah, a good, a good weather year, you'll see those forbs, you'll see those wildflowers pop up, man. And that's when they're, they're on fire. 
So let's go to Oklahoma and Texas since okay. we've been talking about them. What sure. are the reports for those states this year? Um, conditions are generally good. Uh, it's kind of the same. Um, you know, we're looking at Oklahoma kind of from a standpoint of the areas that are that are great. Um, typically, the western third, um, northwest Oklahoma, the Panhandle. Um, but you know, it's it's looking a little better than recent years. The roadside surveys um, is below the the thirty four year average, twenty eight percent below the ten year average, <laughs> but. It's better than the, the last few years, so maybe kind of on the upswing, and um, you know, that's kind of the, the. I know that doesn't sound positive, but it is better. It says you know better than in the last few years, um, mm-hmm. but but it is not. It is not one of those like 2015 through 17 years for yeah. sure. Gotcha. Um, they're they're saying several counties that could be good. Um, Harper, Ellis, and Beaver counties in the northwestern part of the state. Um, so, you know, that that's kind of a, a good spot. One thing I noticed on here, uh, anecdotal evidence suggests that Bob Whites and Juniper trees do not mix. There is a there is a brand new initiative out there and and well it's not it's not there's a new watershed. The Canadian River, I think they've they've kind of uh, taken on the um, removal of the cedars. Uh, Eastern red cedar invasion in the prairies is a huge problem. And so, you know, I mentioned several times that quail are a shrub species, but they're not a, they're not a tree species. Even when the trees are only, you know, six feet tall, eight feet tall for sometimes, you know, maybe up to 20 for those cedars. Um, you're not typically going to see them in, in that habitat, but then other species like uh, lesser prairie chicken or or other you know really important prairie species those cedars are, are terrible for the for their nesting for their you know them being in the habitat they won't uh, they won't occur there so it's pretty cool to see that and we're we're uh, I know Tanner Swank our our uh, senior biologist out in Oklahoma has a uh, passion for torching cedar trees and so we're getting a bunch <laughs> of those cut out of the getting a bunch of those cut out of the prairies. Um, Love it. But Love again, it. Oklahoma Let, Northwest, you know, the panhandle mm-hmm. in the Northwest part is kind of where you would want to look to. If you're an active outdoorsman or woman on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you need to haul. Well, our friends at Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa, right here in the good old USA. They have models for all of your hauling needs. From ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow gear like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. If you're looking for an awesome bird hunting adventure, then now is a great time to head to the state of North Dakota. Why? Well, this year, the state of North Dakota has reported that pheasant counts are up 61% from last year. The sharp-tailed grouse numbers are up 116%. And get this, the Hungarian partridge numbers have tied an all-time high that comes in at... 
200% above last year. I've already hunted in North Dakota this season, and I've seen these bird numbers for myself. Water levels are also up, which means the total number of wetlands are up. 76% above the long-term average. The state's breeding duck index was the 23rd highest on record this year. 39% above the long-term average at 3.4 million. All of these numbers mean that there are more ducks, more geese, pheasants, sharpies, and Hungarian partridge on the landscape. In North Dakota, you can experience an epic waterfowl hunter in the peak of the fall migration and have the best upland hunt of your life all in the same day. I know this because I've done it myself. Start planning your world-class hunt in North Dakota at hellond.com. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day, and now that app is available in our vehicles. Yep, Onyx did it. They launched Apple CarPlay. That means when you plug your phone into your vehicle, you now have the option to open up the Onyx app right on the dash of your hunting rig. No more holding your phone while driving, which is obviously dangerous, and you get all of the same layers on your vehicle dash that you get on your phone. You can see the aerial view of your location while driving down the road, just like you'd see if you're using your own Maps, Apps, Waze, or Google Maps. Except now you can find out if the properties around you are open to the public. The landowner's name that owns the land. And if you're in North Dakota, you can see if that land is posted without even touching your phone. To use this feature, simply make sure your Onyx app is up to date. And if you're not an iPhone user, don't worry. Onyx is currently working on the same platform for Android phones too. Apple CarPlay, the latest incredible feature from Onyx Hunt. Always know where you stand and now where you drive with Onyx Hunt. Okay, the Texas quail hunting uh, forecast yep. for Texas has been dry, bone dry for the last several years. Like much of the country, those effects will be felt to some degree for years to come. But a turnaround in the weather this spring made for better habitat conditions across the state and quail numbers could see slight increases in 2023. Right. And I think the it looked like the southern panhandle um was kind of our the best area. Um and and Thomas, our state coordinator there, touches on a whole lot of great areas, but the, the southern panhandle, um, and then also kind of those the rolling plains could be good as well. And then the now again, I said I was from southern middle Tennessee. Well Thomas says the Texas mid coast, especially the southern region of the mid coast. Uh, so that, that area of the, of the coast, um, and kind of in that general area would be good. Um, and then they also have, you know, they have scalies, uh, they call them blue quail there for sure. And the Trans-Pecos area over on the Western edge, um, it could be a good place to go for scalies. So get this quail season in Texas begins October 28th and it runs through February 25th. 25th. The daily bag limit yeah. is 15 total for bobway quail, yeah. scaled quail, and gambles quail. Right. I got to ask, you know, why are the bag limits so high on a bird that I, we all know that hunting a bird, like, you know, we talk about habitat being everything for a bird and hunting not being a cause for concern. Mm-hmm. I, I still wonder though, 15 is a sure. lot of birds in a bag limit. Why are they so high down there? Yeah, um, I think that's a good question. I think, um, you know, the biologists in, have done a really good job in kind of assessing a population and knowing what our what our carrying capacity is for the species. 
bob whites or just any quail species, really any any upland bird is a pretty short-lived animal. And a lot of times the, the overwinter mortality is high on all those birds. So mm-hmm. when we hunt them, uh, you know, we're basically taking the surplus out of the population rather than it being taken out by um, a weather event or predation or those sorts of things. And so it's called compensatory mortality. Uh, we're not we're not adding it's not additive mortality to the population, and that's where hunting uh, in the past had had gotten a bad name because we, you know, let's say a hundred years ago, we were certainly taking animals at the wrong time of year or taking them to a higher uh, number than we should have, and so we we kind of gave hunting a little bit of a bad name when it talks about you know species management or preservation conservation. Now, you know, those biologists assess those numbers annually. Uh, For instance, um, I believe it was, I think Arkansas has a lower bag limit. They have a bag limit of six. Tennessee, I think, has a bag limit that's adjusted down to, I may get this wrong, but it's eight, I believe. And I looked at those numbers as we were talking, you know, getting ready for this podcast. Those numbers are somewhere around, you know, 12, I would say, is a pretty standard number. Um, you know, six, I think was the lowest I saw. And then certainly 15 is the highest in combination. Um, it doesn't say, I I guess you could have 15 of any of those, um, Hmm. Bob White scales or gambles. I I wonder how often that bag limit is reached. And that's a good point too. And I forgot as I was, but that, that, I would say very, very few people, particularly now, you know, don't you feel you that say, way too? Like I don't think you don't see a whole lot of people that are just super worried about getting a bag limit. Even, you know, um, it's a little easier sometimes on pheasants, certainly, but especially quail. I, I just don't hardly ever hear that where somebody is is like upset because they didn't kill a, you know the a full limit. limit. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. I, I work with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources on their fisheries. And I'm a citizen advisory on uh, on a fisheries council up here. But one thing that yeah. I've talked to with our state fisheries manager about is the walleye limits. And you uh-huh. know, there's a certain time of the year when ice anglers now they have oh sure they're they're basically like you know my fish house is is as comfortable of a bed in it as my home bed almost. And <laughs> the fact that I can stay out there all night when the walleyes are eating after dark in comfort and just keep catching if I'm on a good spot means that I could potentially catch my limit of six walleyes. And I don't need that many. I can feed my entire family and they are meat eating hounds and I can still (laughs) feed all, all of them with three walleyes. I don't need six. I don't need 12 if there's two people in the house and I don't need 18. So I say, we just don't need it. People don't need it to feed their family. If that's the reason for keeping that many, you know, greed is a big deal, an issue, and it has right. a big effect on on our fisheries. Right. And I said we should. I mean, I'm I support lowering the limit to four, which is still sure. more than enough for uh, you know almost everybody to be able to feed their family. And their response is, there are so few people that can catch six yes. walleyes and take six walleyes home with them that it doesn't affect the overall population. Right. My response is still. Who cares? Lower it anyway. Uh, if people are reaching, maybe they'll be saying, sure. hey, I got my limit of four, you know, and then they're they're yeah. happy about it. But there are people now because the way that we fish, we're so much better at it 
that we are reaching those limits and we are having a bigger effect on it. And there are more people out there spending time. So that's, that's just a little bit different because that's habitat for a bird versus a fish in the lake is, is much different, obviously. But well, sure. But you got to have good habitat underneath the water there for the fish to to nest and and to produce, you know, but, but I do Mm -hmm. think you were, you touched on it, man. When you said technology, like that is a lot of the reason why I think fisheries um, regulations are getting really difficult because, man, live scoping is is a real deal. And we're not our technology hasn't changed all that much for um, for hunting. Of course, we have things, great things like on X where we can kind of help our memory or help our scouting, those sorts of things. But it still comes down to a connection with you and that bird, uh, you know, and and the gun. And that's not going to change. And so. I think you're right. I think most people are not out there really pushing that limit. It's very, very few that would um, that would achieve a daily bag in most of our states. Um, We're approaching an hour already, Andy. I could talk to you for hours. Are. I apologize for <laughs> listeners that don't want to hear no. about our side stories. But let's <laughs> let's get to the southeast. Like, are there okay. some shining stars in the southeast? You talk about Alabama, well, Georgia, Florida. I mean. Where, yeah, where do we think overall in those regions? So I'll throw a little bit of a, a thing out there that maybe you haven't or most people probably don't think, especially if you're not in the southeast. But Virginia is a state this year that really piqued my interest. Um, you know, so the 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 coastal plain, the the pine belt, if you will, the longleaf pine or those those really nice open um, stands of pine that extends all the way up into Virginia and the edge of Maryland and this year in Virginia, they had a really, really good year on that uh, coast. Um, they kind of had some like, nice weather. They didn't have, like for us, one thing we had to think about is hurricanes. Uh, Florida's mm-hmm. f- Florida's um, uh, forecast was affected by that. But then, um, yeah, it looks like they're, they're going to have a good season in Virginia in the areas where there are quail. Um, again, southeast Virginia. Um and and that was looking really good. So there's areas to hunt. There's there's some top spots highlighted highlighted on here. Um, Coastal Plain and the Piedmont, uh, best opportunity for successful quail hunting. Uh, you can certainly check on those different management areas. And uh, and there's a lot of state forest in in Virginia that is open to hunting as well. Um, they're not, you're going to have to work for it, but there's birds out there. I would say we could roll down the coast and look at that. Um, same thing in North Carolina and, and South Carolina, uh, South Carolina has got a very detailed report, giving you some kind of key locations, but overall a, a, a good year for quail. Um, we've got some great success stories out of South Carolina where we're, we're working in areas and really benefiting um, the quail populations working with the South Carolina DNR and the Forest Service. Um, but um, it just, you know, so you can check out the South Carolina report and look at areas. Um, the spring survey um, is not showing a whole lot of difference from the previous year, but it says it looks like the long term downward trends in the data have flattened out over the last 10 years in South Carolina. So Hmm. Um, if you've been out there and you've been getting after it, it's probably going to be a similar year to what you had in the last few. Um, so I'd roll down to Georgia. Georgia's kind of the the stronghold for quail and they have, I'm not sure I, I meant to ask this earlier. When does this podcast release Travis? 
Um, pretty soon after we hit record. Great. Uh, yep. If it comes out ahead of the 15th, which I'm, I'm sure it will, the deadline to apply for Georgia uh, public land quail hunting opportunities, the quota hunt, is the 15th. So if you're interested in hunting one of those public lands in Georgia that are available for quota hunts, get in there before the 15th. And there's some, Will there there's be some a surplus if there's extra tags available or extra licenses I am available? honestly not sure how that works. If there's, a, there's typically, I don't believe there's a surplus. I believe it gets, it's a pretty high demand for that. Um, but yeah, if you get in and can get it in, um, you'll have a good opportunity. They limit it, the hunt, so you can have a quality hunt and have a really good chance to get in. That's interesting. I'm, su- I'm surprised yeah. that they do that. Um, yeah. and, and did they do that in any, did, are there any other States that do the quota yeah, um, like that? Right now I am not think none of those come to mind. Um, I think, you know, Kentucky's is still open. Uh, several different areas that they have. Um, Tennessee doesn't have a quota system in place. I believe Georgia's the the one right now that's doing that. And I think it's a great idea. It helps to increase the quality of the experience when you get out there after them. Uh, Illinois, I think, does have some. Uh, I know they have some pheasant areas. I believe they have some quail areas, too, uh, that are are draw. Um, You know, Florida's looking good. Gosh, Florida's one that we, we sometimes overlook. But South Florida, I mean, it's pretty amazing quail factory uh even well just all of florida in general north florida is typically um a lot of private land and that's kind of the mecca for for um kind of high-end quail production if you will but there are some wildlife management areas in the panhandle and um and some and in the central and southwest regions that are supporting really good quail populations so if you're if you're near florida and want to want to figure it out and get down there you've got to great chance of getting on wild birds on public land in, mm. in Florida. That's something that I've always wanted to do. I wanted to get in, yeah. you know, I, I love a road trip in bird country. Yeah. I do it in yeah. the Dakotas, Montana, Minnesota. I just love it. Like I, yep. I could look at a map and say, that looks good. I'm going to go see what it looks like to my eyes. And I get there yeah. and I just look over it. And then I watch my dog out and I'm like, gosh, best day ever. Like, oh, I just love yeah. going somewhere new. I want to do that sometime down it's in the southeast, so different. Like, yeah, you should. But do, I so have different. to imagine people do it, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Have you? So, yeah. Yeah. Florida is really neat, and and it's so. I mean, even from where I'm at, man, it's so different. You know, it's tropical basically when you get down far enough, and so you're hunting in palmettos and really open pine stands, and saw. You know, um, you're you're hunting in. Um, you just tons of different grasses that you haven't seen. I'm told wire grass stands, you're hunting in those. There might be pitcher plant bogs. There's all kind of really cool stuff. There's there's wild hogs, there's gators, there's cottonmouth. <laughs> there's lots of things that are uh so yeah, snake boots are probably a a, a, a key thing that you would want. Never mind, I'm not going. I don't want any part of it. I'm out. I'm out. I yeah, hate snakes. I just yeah. you get a pair of snake boots and head on out, man. You'll be fine. Yeah. But um but yeah. It's different. It's just a totally different experience. Uh, kind of like, you know, somebody from maybe the East going to hunt Oklahoma, how, you know, how different that is. It's just sure. re- really open and really sandy, you know, vast very and sandy. sandy. Yeah. And, but, but then to go to South, to go to Florida in general, this is way different. Um, you know, it's pretty cool. I think when, you know, it's surprising for somebody to come up and walk in the snow and hunt and just how, 
much it wears on your body to walk for miles and miles through snow. It could be eight inches of snow and it doesn't look like much, but man, when you walk it, oh, it just, it adds up. Similarly, let's say Oklahoma, for instance, you get the sand dune type Mm -hmm. areas. Walking in sand where your feet, you know, sink in every step and it's, there's nothing solid underneath. Like that can tire you down too. It's interesting how the, the different ground, um, can challenge a hunter in the miles that you're able to put on. Or like when maybe we'll, we'll have time to touch on the West, but like, man, out West and those little, those little like small rocks or, you know, like golf ball size rocks or Mm -hmm. baseball size rocks, trying to walk in that, man, it just wears you out. (laughs) I love it so much. Let's go to the West. Um, We'll wrap up this with the Western and then maybe we'll pick, like if there's one place to hunt this year, where would you go type thing and why um, for people to consider for a do-it-yourself bird hunt. But let's go Northwest, some of those quail species up there. Yeah. Um, Northwest is looking, looking pretty good for several different uh, species. You know, that's kind of the area where you would look for mountain quail or valley quail, uh, also known as California quail. But Mm -hmm. um, looks like this year is a, is a, Pretty dang great valley quail year. Um, so Washington. I like how your voice just Oregon. got a little quieter there too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to be careful. I'm not, right. uh, but but it's uh, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, uh, in areas where that have valley quail. Um, I've heard a lot of pretty great reports. Um, I have too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's I a good year to the, go northwest. Yeah, I mean, and if you're a, a a big time traveler and you kind of have some connections out there already. Um, I, I would say they'd be hard to turn that down for a destination hunt this year, uh, just because, and I, you know, I'm of course biased. It's not like a species I get to get to hunt often. So it would be one I would want to try to check off for sure. And, mm-hmm. um, there were some good reports, I believe out of Oregon, um, on, uh, mountain quail as well. They're a really difficult bird to, to survey there's actually our least studied quail um the mountain quail and so it looks like they're having a good year though um a lot of forest fires since 2020 uh, and that's those scars those forest fire scars when they start to regrow that's that's what the mountain quail love and so there's a lot of that out there and um you know I would say pretty similar to that, just, you know, how the dog hair thick stands of mm-hmm. uh, stuff for, for grouse, um, that, you know, that first three, four five years, well, actually probably more like what we would consider woodcock habitat, you know, and in, in the Midwest, like upper Midwest, that really, you know, first three, four years that you find woodcock in more often than you would grouse. Yep. That's kind of what mountain quail are going to like out there in the, in the far West. Gosh, um, they're, I just, they're just occurring like in California, California, um, Oregon, and, and Washington. I think they occur in Nevada barely, but they're not open. I don't believe in in Nevada for for hunt. Hmm. Uh, let's go California, Arizona, New Mexico. Yeah, um, California is a state that mo- like honestly, a lot of people overlook, but it's huge. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's got a lot of different species um there's gambles there's valleys there's mountain um there are pheasants (laughs) there's um chucker there are lots and lots of different things but it looks like um i think they they had some good weather but 
a good year overall for again valley um mountain quail trends have been declining since 17 but it's looking better this year um heavy snowfall provided good rearing conditions so they're they're heavily dependent on those those winter snows to provide moisture uh for uh for the birds so that's um that's good it it looks like gambles are actually down uh in in um california so I would say, you know, valley quail populations are your best bet. And, so it's interesting uh, because if we go over to Arizona, you mm-hmm. know, as a whole, scaled and gambles numbers are looking better than the last yes. few years. So yep. that I think, you know, I, if I think about quail hunting the last couple of years, the popularity has exploded in Arizona. Yes. I mean, it just, it's become yep. a very popular quail hunting destination yeah. because I mean, I've been there a couple times. I, I get it. It's amazing to watch the dogs run through those, those live oaks, those mountainous areas for Merns. Merns are just a beautiful bird. Oh, and similarly, the scaled and, and gambles quail, um, you know, but the weather is really dictates everything there. So, um, yeah. will this be a year to head to Arizona again? Um, if you want to hunt the desert birds. So if you want to hunt gambles or scalies, yes. Uh, Merns, I, I, you know, and look, I, I'm I'm right there with you, man. Went for the first time a couple years ago, and it's a heck of a hunt. If you can mm-hmm. get in on all three, that's what everybody wants. But I would say Merns, um, the rains are really difficult. A lot of times they're producing clutches in in August and September. They're, they're right. Like, That's what's yeah, crazy so, to me is how late those monsoons yeah. come in. And all of a sudden right. it's like, yep, let's go. That's right. So and to me, it feels like predict. it's raining quail, <laughs> you know, like yeah. a, a monsoon comes in and now there's just suddenly quail in the valley. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I would say let's kind of lump Arizona, New Mexico together because that's pretty similar for both like gambles and scalies, man. Yeah. It's a good year. Um, it's, uh, this, so, you know, we, well over the 10 year average, 46% and the long-term average of 49%. Uh, so that it, you know, number of harvested Okay. So this is based on in 2022, the number of harvested juvenile gamble quail was well over the 10 year average. So 46% of the ones harvested in 22 were juveniles, um, and the long-term average is 49%. So it looks like a lot of young birds in the population last year so that they would have produced, you know, new nests this year. The weather conditions held so that they they had a good production year. So, um, it, and, you know, basically those are going to be found in about two-thirds of the state. Um, it says, you know, west of Highway 89 and south of I-40, is where you're going to find gambles. And then scalies are going to be um, open plains and foothills of Chihuahuan Desert and Cochise and Graham counties, more southeast Arizona is going to be your your area to kind of search out. more. So in general, more um, brushy draws, more like, you can't say creek beds because there's no, I, I can at least, because there's no well, water in them. But right, but they're dry, but dry creek they're beds. Dry. I mean, that's, yeah, that's where I have to target them. Yep. And then I've had them where you're going down those creek beds and that dry ground, bare ground with, with, with you know, prickly stuff everywhere. And then <laughs> yep. just up on the hillside, it'll be grassy and you'll you'll flush cubbies of, uh, of uh, scalies up there. 
you know, in the same general area, but more grassy typically for the scalies versus uh, gambles. Hmm. All right. And same well, thing from New Mexico. New Mexico is showing a good year uh, for both of those species. Um, south Southeast is has been kind of poor over the last couple of years, but this year, um, good monsoons, good spring rains, decent conditions. So, uh, Mern's nesting in this um, was was pretty good uh, in the southwest part, and the southeast part was good for for um, scale quail. So, um, and actually, we're going to be um, talking with Casey Cardinal, who's in New Mexico. Um, uh, see, what is it? Um, resident bird by uh, resident bird biologist, um, so non migratory bird biologist. We're going to be talking with her um, here in a day or so on our on the wing podcast with pheasants okay. forever and quail forever. Awesome, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, we're we're giving people kind of an overview right now, but yeah, you and Bob St. Pierre are going to be providing another in depth quail analysis right. um, on that and, episode too. So I encourage people to check that out if they want more. Yeah information be a just more entertaining talking and more of them so <laughs> well all right let's do it this way let's wrap it up you're gonna go someplace i'm gonna go someplace this year quail hunting where is it gonna be i'll i'll go first yeah and it's it's really hard for me to choose between these i there's a lot of places i want to go but idaho i'm, I'm going mm-hmm. back to idaho i've hunted them mm-hmm. there before i I don't know that there's a more beautiful place to hunt birds in the lower 48 than Idaho. I just, oh man, it is. And when I hear that the numbers are strong again, it just says, I want to go back because some of our birdiest quail hunts ever on this TV, on our TV show have come from Idaho. And it's just like, if I ever have the chance to go back, I'm taking it. Yeah. Well, you should. And there's, I mean, there's a chance for six species there. Uh, Yeah. Yep. You know, you can get you can get valley quail and pheasant near Boise. You can head head north and get rough grouse, dusky grouse, um, chucker, and huns. Um, actually, on the same walk, you can get you can get four species on a walk up there. You know, it's pretty crazy. I I've done uh, so. I'm looking at a valley quail right now. Um, it's in my office here from mm. Idaho and it's just so mm. beautiful. And oh, on this, that yeah. same day I got Hungarian partridge and chucker and even flush sage grouse. I obviously we didn't oh, shoot wow. them. The season was closed, but just to, to see yeah. the big bombers get up. Like, yep. I mean, Oh gosh, it yep. is, it is awesome. I mean, I do want to get into Oregon and hunt uh, quail over there too. And California, I, I would go Idaho number one. I really have enjoyed the desert quail hunts of Arizona, and I've never hunted yes. New Mexico. So there's a yep. part of me that may find a way to make that happen yet yeah. this year. We'll see. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, How about you? Think, where are you going to go? Well, just to touch on that for a second, when I did it out west, I didn't carry my dog. You know, I relied on some other guys that I was with. You know, it's a long way from here, but I would absolutely take my dog. Um, like, so I would say, you know, don't be afraid of that if you're heading out west and you're worried about taking your dog. If if your dog's in good condition, fairly tough feet, um, you know, you could you could put you could run booties if you wanted, but I, it it you could be strategic about where you're going. Certainly, don't go right in the middle of the desert, but you can find areas to go and hunt with your dogs just just fine in those yep. southwestern states. 
a lot of public land up opportunities out yeah. there in the West. A lot. You won't know if you don't go. Yep. That's right. That's right. Uh, all right. So I picked my uh, my spot. Where are you going? All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna roll a trip, and that's gonna be sometime in January. But it's gonna be a, a Missouri. Uh, it's gonna be Missouri, Kansas, Texas, or Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas. You know, and that's that's my that's my plan for this year. Um, if if uh, money and time was no, you know, no concern, yep. I would. I would head to probably Oregon and cause I haven't gotten a mountain mountain quail yet. And uh, I would try to try to hunt valleys and mountain and get a chance at a mountain quail. Love it. Andy, appreciate yeah. your time. I know you're going to be in the woods hunting grouse and then soon yep. after hunting for Bob whites for and everything else. Appreciate everything whites. you yep. do and everyone on your team does at quail forever. Hopefully this was helpful to anybody that, need a little inspiration to get out there this winter and chase quail. If you want more information and more in-depth analysis than we were able to provide here, you can just head to the quailforever.org and click on the quail hunting forecast, break it down by state. There's a lot of information. We, we just, um, did our best to scratch the surface and then tell stories about our kids that took us away from what we're really after today. Yeah. 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 Um, So so I absolutely, man, I appreciate that. And I appreciate, you know, pointing folks to our, our forecasts, both for pheasant and quail. I would say too, like if you're listening to this and you always think, Oh, those guys are getting out after it. And I really need to do that. Like, look, we both live real lives too. And I would say, don't like pick three days and go somewhere close like if you're nervous about doing it, find a guy with a dog that, or find a person with a dog that you can, you can like tag along. Um, look at our series on online, how to hunt upland birds. There's a whole lot of things like don't, don't wait another year to get into this. If you're interested, don't wait another year. Cause you used to do it and you just don't have time. Like man, two, three days, a long weekend, you can get out there and you can get a chance at birds. Just go yep. do it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Thanks, Andy. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. 